I like power. Is that, that, that may, let me, let me explain, because that, that could sound maybe a, a, a little sketchy. When I, when I say that, when I say I like power, I'm talking like power tools. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, something with, something with an engine and they makes noise, like a V8. I, you know, hopefully there's still some V8s left, left around as, as we progress uh, throughout the years. One time, a very generous person, my favorite car is the Corvette. I'd never driven one uh, except for like a few years ago. And one person very generously said, I'm going to let you drive my brand new mid-engine Corvette for like a couple miles. And I got to do that. And I will, I will never forget how that felt. That, that is an amazing, amazing thing. I love watching somebody uh, dunk over somebody else. You're watching basketball. Just, I mean, just wreck somebody, you know, posterize them, you know, with, with authority. I, I love that. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, I, like to, I like to play volleyball. Some of you guys know that. Um, I can't hit a volleyball hard, but I really appreciate it when other, other people do that. I've got a couple teammates that can do that, and so I love, I love to see them hit the ball hard, so that's cool. Uh, when somebody hits like a 375-yard drive and you're playing golf, and some of you, I know you're like, ugh, golf. You, you, try, you try to do that. that. Like, that's an impressive thing. I, I really enjoy powerful things. Just going to the beach Watching the wind and the waves and what that can accomplish, I just enjoy those kinds, those kinds of moments. I, I, I don't know. I just, something about it just leaves me, uh, I don't know, just leaves me excited. They're amazing, they're amazing to me. There's all kinds of different powerful things. And, and I, know, I know some of y'all feel the same way. Like there are things that, that attract you to very powerful things. But one of the things that I've noticed that you probably have too is that every single one of those things fade over time. Like at some point, you know, you know, I, I got to drive the Corvette that one time, but even if I got to drive that all the time and had that, at some point, the power of that engine, the power of that car is going to fade over time. Or if you have power tools like I do and you really enjoy those things, one of the things that you've noticed if you've had to buy a couple sets over the years is that at some point, the battery you know, starts to fade. The, the, you know, the equipment doesn't work the way that it used to. Those things diminish over time. Even if I could hit a golf ball 375 yards, which I cannot, maybe, uh, maybe if I tried it like down the highway and, and I hit it straight, maybe, maybe I, could, I could do that. Um, I'm not going to keep being able to do that. There, the power diminishes and it fades, with the exception of one. And in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're going to look, we're going to get a, a completely different perspective on the type of power that never fades. In Revelation chapter 1, we were given a picture of Jesus as high priest, and that picture is reinforced through chapters 2 and 3. We talked about Revelation chapter 2 and 3 last week in the message to the churches. When we come to Revelation chapters 4 and 5, however, the picture of Jesus we're given is shifted as our, draws, our, as our eyes are drawn away from what is in front of us to what is above us. And John gives us a really clear separation of focus, and he describes this experience in Revelation 4 and 5 as looking through a doorway into the throne room of God. And as he does, what he sees leaves him awestruck. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. 
These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there is what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. There are all kinds of uh, different things that are really interesting that kind of capture our imagination in the text. You know, what, what, what are these colors, what do these jewels represent? Jasper, ruby, this emerald rainbow. Like, these are pretty amazing, amazing, incredible things. What do they represent? And the 24 elders with thrones all around, like, who are these people? Are they... I don't know, maybe they're the 12 patriarchs of Israel along with the 12, with 12 apostles of, of Jesus. Uh, the seven spirits of God, like that's, that's an incredible, like what, what is that, that thing that seems unique? Well, maybe that's representative of the character and nature of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah describes the Holy Spirit like this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Interesting as they may be, these things are not the point of the text, although they are meant to overwhelm us and strike us with awe. The point of the text is that John has been invited into the throne room of God. And really, I, I think maybe this is just the easiest way for our brains to conceptualize what is going on because we understand the concept of the room where it happens. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you, I, I don't know, are there any Hamilton fans in here? You guys, okay, you caught the reference. Uh, my wife is going to be like, she's teaching this morning, so she's going to be like, you made a Hamilton reference and I missed it, uh, but I'll, I'll, share it if, I'll share it with her. Um, I, I've been to D.C. before, but I don't know why, but I've never been invited into the Oval Office. I don't, maybe some of you have been, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the president just didn't know I was in town. That's, that must have been what it was. Um, I've toured Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace, but for some reason, um, no royal member of the family invited me to tea. I'm not sure why, why that hasn't happened in my life. John is brought to see where God is, or at least he's shown something that his brain can handle without exploding. And this isn't the first time that we've been given this glimpse or this imagery in the Bible. Uh, this is how the throne room of God is described in places like Isaiah chapter 6 or Ezekiel chapter 1 or Daniel chapter 7. So for some of you, if you're more familiar with your Old Testament, some of these things should sound a little familiar. And chapters 4 and 5 are going to continue to seem familiar as John employs some of the same imagery and language and descriptions that the prophets did to describe being in the presence of God. And we're going to be shown in an, an event in the throne room of God that precipitates the rest of John's letter. The exciting part is coming, but before that happens, John records for us what is going on in the room where it happens. Revelation chapter 4, starting verse 6. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, chapter 5 is going to continue on and kind of set the stage for all the exciting stuff that we kind of want to get to, I think. Like, oh, there's seven, seven seals, and there's seven bowls, and there's seven trumpets, and there's this thousand-year thing to talk about, and there's all kinds of these ex exciting imageries that are happening here, and yet we, we kind of come to four and five, and we're kind of stopped in our tracks. Like, wait, wait, wait just a second before we get there. There's something that you need to see and that you need to understand. There's some divine perspective that you need to be aware of. 
And if we were to sum up what's taking place in the throne room of God, we, we know instinctively what this is, and we, we're told what they're doing, is that we understand what's happening here is worship. That, that's what ta- what's taking place in this text. Now, it's interesting because a lot of us would say, oh, yeah, so the, the seraphim and, you know, the 24 elders and all the, you know, every, the angels, they're, they're singing. Well, it's interesting the word is saying. Um, a lot of times when we hear the word worship, we immediately go to music. It's music, it's singing, like that's what worship is and that's what it means. Now, it can be represented by those things for sure, but that's, that's not what this word is referencing, not holistically. It's not just limited to music, and it's not just limited to singing. Uh, there's a pause here in the action because we're tempted to move on too quickly to the good parts, but if we do, we miss the most important part of why this letter provides hope in the end. Because in the end, God will make everything new. And here's why we're, we're brought to this place to pause, to get, be given this divine perspective of worship. It's because when we do, when we worship God, everything else is put in its place. We lose a significant understanding of what worship is meant to convey if we, relate, if we limit it to just music and just singing. Not only because there are so many other valuable ways in which we worship, and we worship through prayer, we worship through scripture, through generosity, through hospitality, so many other things, like all the things we do on Sunday morning. Like, these are all worshipful things to our audience of one. But even beyond that, all of those tools of worship that exist that enable us to give God glory and honor and thanksgiving, even in that, there's a broader understanding than just the things that we do. Worship, worship isn't so much just the actions that we have or the thoughts that we think or the beliefs that we share. It's, it's, a, it's about our attention. It's about what we give our attention and awareness to. Everybody uh, worships someone or something. Worship is ascribing value to. It's, it's what we give worthiness to, and that could be all kinds of different things. I mean, some of us, I mean, let's be honest, like some of us are going to worship a football team later on, you know, this, this afternoon. Like, we, we know we ascribe some worth, and, and our mood is going to be affected by that. And, you know, some of us, um, some of us you know, are going to be worshiping our lunch a little bit, right? We're going to ascribe some value to, to making sure we, we get something to eat, those kinds of, those kinds of things. And that's a little bit, little bit tongue-in-cheek. But let, let's be clear, like, we're all, we're all good worshipers. And if you don't know how you worship or what you worship the most in your life, ask somebody who's close to you to tell you. Because they could, they could point out to you, here, what, are, what do you think are the most important things, the most valuable things to me in my life? And just, just have that, that person share that with you. There are all kinds of things that we can worship, but it, or it's the things that we do and the things that we give attention to, more specifically, that point back to what or who we worship. We worship what we give our attention to and the lens through which we view life. And we're given a choice in this constantly. The low-hanging fruit would be like Sunday mornings. Like who or what is going to get my attention this morning? We, we all made a decision this morning as to who or what was going to get our attention today and our choice of whether or not to be here or not to be here. But this is also true in how we handle people, circumstances, all of our decision-making. As we're called in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, by Paul to be living sacrifices, to be transformed by the renewal of the way we think, this is a response to God's mercy and glory. The way that we engage with life is fundamentally changed by the reality of God being seated on his throne. Here's John. He's exiled on an island for his faith, separated from his loved ones, his familiar life, 
his comfort, writing to the oppressed and persecuted church in which his fellow believers are not just uncomfortable, they're dying because they're choosing Jesus. And in order to set the stage for the message of hope and encouragement he's conveying to his fellow believers, he sets the stage with worship. Despite his circumstances, John needed his attention drawn to God, living and active, seated on his throne, above all other thrones, because this is going to set the tone for what is to come. And how to Judge Dragon, Mark Moore uh, talks about this passage, and he just says, Worship, in its essence, then, is showing reverence to God. It's not what we do, but what we are aware of. You know you have worshiped when you've recognized who God is and suddenly become aware that you are in his presence. Our attention in worship is, is directional. It's either upward toward God, it's either outward to other people or our circumstances, or it's either directed inward to ourselves. And the way we experience life, the perspective we have is going to be determined by what we direct our attention to. And what John is given here in Revelation 4 and 5 is divine perspective. We've all had these moments in life in which we felt like the thing that we are experiencing in the moment is, is the end all and be all. Nothing else can compare. If you remember your first ever real breakup, you know exactly the feeling that I'm talking about right now. You just thought everything was over. It couldn't get worse. Am I, am I right? Some of you may, may be like, I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little too personal with, with, that, with that example. But you thought, man, I'm just never, never going to find another girl quite like Sally in fifth grade, you know, and I, I never dated a Sally in fifth grade, but, um, you, you know, you, you think nothing could get worse, and your parents, they rolled their eyes at you, and you didn't understand why, and yet somehow the world didn't end. You're still here because there's a resiliency and strength and peace that is stronger than anything in this world has to offer, and God is at work on his throne to give us that strength and that resiliency and that peace and that hope if we just have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the attention to give to what he is doing to make everything new. And once we have the perspective of the vastness of who God is and what he is doing, the things and events of this world seem so insignificant in comparison because they're small and temporary and God is omnipresent and eternal and there is no power greater than his. What we just kind of miss out on sometimes in our perspective, our limited perspective, is that God chooses to wield his power a little bit differently than we would. Earlier I mentioned that we're going to be shown an event in the throne room of God that precipitates the rest of the content of John's letter, and it sets the tone for our perspective we're meant to have for the cycle of humanity that all of us experience and that continues to happen in human history. And this is Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is God, in God's right hand, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
I, th- I think we understand some of that imagery in which we understand that Jesus is being described here as being worthy of the only one who can open the scroll. But the scroll, like the seals, like what, what's going on here? And we're coming to that. We're coming to that. The, cha- the rest of the chapters of the letter are coming. But in God's hand is a scroll, and this scroll is representative of God's will, what he will do, and ultimately how his kingdom will prevail on the earth. But there's certainly no one worthy to bring this about. And there's a direct contrast here that John is addressing with the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, or empire, because it's the Roman Empire that's in control at this point. At, at this point, It doesn't matter how powerful the empire or the emperor is, neither can bring about the kingdom, the kind of kingdom or world that we were created for. All of them eventually bring about the same kind of problems and the same kind of results, which is going to be what we discover in the following chapters. Domitian... He had a scroll of achievements that only he was the one worthy of. And so it described all of his exploits, his military conquests, his rebuilding of Rome, like his, you know, what he did for the economy, all the things that Domitian did. Like he, he had this thing, and it described how glorious and wonderful and worthy of honor and praise and how amazing he was to be called Lord and God. And yet he also happened to be hated by the people who were in government and in power along with him, and he was assassinated by the end of his reign. And nothing changes. before. The, it's, it was no different before the Roman Empire and hasn't been any different after. There's always an end to that type of power. There's never going to be a time in human history when an earthly kingdom will be produced that will satisfy the needs of its people or deal with the problems of this world properly. Listen, I know we all have our favorites. We have our favorite kingdoms. We have our favorite countries, we have our favorite governments, we have our favorite empires, and, and, and certainly there are some that are worse than others, of, absolutely, but none are the solution to the problems that humanity faces. And John is overwhelmed by emotion when he recognizes that this is the case. And yet there is one who is worthy to open the scroll to bring about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. There is one who is able to bring us to what God had created us for from the beginning. And while he certainly has claim to an earthly kingdom as the line of Judah and the root of David, these are Old Testament references and descriptions of the Messiah, Jesus instead becomes the lamb who was slain, the living sacrifice that allows not just one particular kingdom, but the entirety of all creation to be redeemed back to God. Jesus is the only one who brings things to where they are supposed to be. And this is the thing that John has shown in this moment, right before all the exciting stuff happens, because he needs and we need this divine perspective of how we put everything into place in this world. The rest of chapter 5 is dedicated to worshiping Jesus. They sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Countless angels join in. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then all creation joins in. In verse 13, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And so we we're brought to the throne room of God to make the same decision, to, to have the same opportunity, to have the same recognition that John does in this moment. 
We must make the decision of what power in this life is going to capture our attention. What power are we going to be left in awe of? There are plenty of nations and people and circumstances that are vying for our attention. To whom will we direct our worship? To whom will we kneel? All kingdoms on earth end, but not even death can stop the lamb who is slain. So many have given their lives and their attention and their worship to the kingdoms of this world, but they all in the same, in the same way. Gone if not forgotten, dead and left to the pages of history. But the kingdom of God continues on even in the face of death and oppression and persecution. Jesus continues to reign and gives us a new conception of how we live our lives and what we live them for. There's only one who can lead humanity to what God desires in the end, and he is Jesus. He's described in Revelation as a conquering king, as a high priest, but most powerful, most powerfully is the lamb who was slain, and the only one deserving glory and honor and attention. And so we must ask ourselves, what power are we attracted to? In what direction is our worship being placed? You know, there, there are countless things that we come up against in our, in our daily lives. And, and I don't know what you are facing this week. Maybe, maybe this week looks normal for you. Maybe there's a particular uh, circumstances that, uh, circumstance that you're wrestling with. Maybe something's going on in your family, in your job. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. But what I do know is in every one of those situations, we have a choice in what direction our attention is facing and what perspective we choose to view that thing. And our choice is whether or not it's going to be a divine one or it's going to be a temporary one. Is it going to be based on uh, things that we can achieve or, or the things that only God can do? And with that kind of perspective, and it, it, it changes how we live. It, it changes how things impact our lives, and it changes how we impact the lives of others. And so I want to, I want to encourage you this week to be intentional about the divine perspective. And taking a pause, whatever the thing that's coming that you know is coming, and whatever the thing is that you're dealing with, take, take a pause and worship. Give your attention to God first. Because he's the only one worthy. He's the only one worthy of, worthy of glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving. And he's the only one who's going to bring things to where they should be in our life. He's the one who can make everything new.